The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. I'd get panic attacks and anxiety and I would find myself depressed more than usual. And I started to equate that to certain personalities and certain coworkers that I'd engage with who would start to make me feel that way. That's a quote from today's guest, Minda Hartz, describing the experience of being constantly triggered at work. After years of facing toxic environments and racial trauma, Minda finally figured out it wasn't her, it was them. After years of these kinds of environments, Minda realized, quote, I don't have to leave my career in someone else's hands, and I don't have to make everything work. You know, many of us are triggered at work, and we're so used to it, we don't even notice. Our personal boundaries are crossed, we're shamed, we're micromanaged, stripped of our autonomy, or plain disrespected. Workplace triggers can be small things, like constantly feeling you're being talked over at meetings, or the avalanche of emails that come outside of work hours. Or they can be larger, racial slights like the ones Minda will talk about today. Let's dive in now to understand a bit more about how and when work can be traumatic, and how we can start healing. Minda Hartz is an author, an equity advocate, and the CEO of the Memo LLC, a career development platform for women of color. I started our conversation by asking her why she ultimately left working in corporate America and what was behind her decision to leave. It really was just this feeling of isolation constantly, at least where I sat. I was the only, the only Black woman, the only woman of color. And so um, I started to kind of settle into these these biases. and, And because of the work I did, I would have a portfolio of very high net worth individual, um, mostly men, uh, white men, I would have to take, a, <laughs> I'd say eat a lot of, a lot of um, things that I didn't want to because of some of the things that they would say to me in meetings or, you know, well-intentioned, but harmful. And I just started to get really tired of that type of lifestyle and, and realized that I didn't have to just survive at work, but I could thrive. And if I feel this way, maybe there's others that feel this way too. What was the moment where you were, did you have a take this job and shove it moment? (laughs) I always had that moment, but I think the (laughs) the moment that I decided to do something about it was in 2014, where I was on a new client project and I thought that this was just the the best thing for my career. And I was so excited about starting this new project at a a new client site. And it was just as toxic as toxic could be, Mm -hmm. mostly racially. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't experienced quite that type of trauma in the workplace um, that I experienced there. And 
it started to impact my mental health. Like I'd get panic attacks and anxiety and I would find myself depressed more than usual. And uh, I started to equate that to certain personalities and certain coworkers that I'd engage with that would start to make me feel that way. Um, and very long story short, I ended up finding the courage to go and have a conversation with the most senior woman in our department to just say, hey, you see these things going on. I really need some assistance here. I can't change this culture by myself. And she told me that there was nothing she could do about it because she had a personal relationship with one of the people that was causing me a lot of trauma. And um, it was in that moment that I realized that I don't have to leave my career into somebody else's hands, that I don't have to make everything work. I think sometimes as women, we feel like we have to. And I realized that there were women who came before me who leaned into their courage. So I could be a beneficiary of their courage, of their voice. And I asked myself when I was left her office into my car, you know, I'm crying all of the things. And I said, who's going to be a beneficiary of my courage? How am I going to make the workplace better than I found it? And that's what led me on the journey to create a body of work that centers women of color in the workplace. You know, when you talked about feeling panic attacks, I want to zoom in on that because because I don't know if listeners have had this experience. I have too, of there literally being a person that you work with who makes you physically sick. Did you have that? Like that you are physically like you get nauseous, you get into a sense of panic. Like it, it is, it's so powerful. Yes. I, and I hope, I hope there's not many people that have to experience it because it's one of the worst feelings. But yes, but I didn't understand when I was feeling this way. I literally just thought I was losing my mind. Right? <laughs> I thought something was, was wrong with me because I would be in certain meetings and I could barely get my words out. I mean, I didn't even recognize myself uh, after a while. I mean, literally, if you would have asked me what my name was, it would have, I would have struggled to say Linda Hartz because that's the feeling, the paralyzation that I would experience around this particular person. And I feel that angst when her name popped into my inbox account because every time I engaged with this person, it was always toxic and it was starting to impede upon everything. I started to question myself, just my health. And again, I didn't necessarily at first equate it to this person or this environment. I thought it was me. And so I was very concerned. And then once I realized, oh, this is a trigger for me and this is what's causing it, I, I realized that I, my mental health is more important than anything else. Well, you, you write that we act out the trauma on ourselves, you know, as if we're manifesting mm -hmm. through our own anxiety, the trauma and the systemic issues that we're experiencing. I mean, that feels so deeply unfair. <laughs> <laughs> and yet that's, that's what you were doing, it sounds like. It was because I thought that if I worked harder, if I, you know, <laughs> brought her cupcakes, maybe that would change the <laughs> dynamics, you know, once <laughs> one she understood that I'm not here to take your job. I'm not, I'm just here to collaborate, not compete. Um, I thought that I needed to be doing more to show this person that, and the more, and so I did put the mirror on myself thinking it was me when I realized it was a system who failed me, but it was also this colleague. And then everyone who watched it all unfold. So what would you tell Minda today? What would Minda today tell 
Minda back then? <laughs> um, I, I would definitely tell her, you know, you don't have to wait for somebody else to affirm you in the workplace if you're being mistreated. Like, you know what humanity, dignity, equity, and respect feels like. And so anything outside of that, you have a choice. And um, the younger version of myself didn't think I had a choice. I thought as a first-generation college student, first person in my family to enter into corporate America, that this is what I had to do. I had to get that gold watch, right? I had to get the, the bear at the end of the day. <laughs> this is what my family is counting on me for. And realizing that if I if she chooses herself, everything will work out the way that it's supposed to. Mm. You know, when this show first started, we did a great episode called The Anxiety of the Only. And I'm curious if if you felt being that achiever, if you thought of yourself or if you can look back now and think of yourself, gosh, that that all made me really anxious. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny that you say that because I think the underlying, I guess, symptom, I had always probably felt anxious about that, right? That responsibility. But I think then getting into environments that demonstrate exclusivity, it just compounds that feeling. I, I really hate to admit to you that I spent 15 years in my prior life and there wasn't a day I didn't go to work feeling anxious. And you weren't anxious. I didn't know I was. So <laughs> I was in the situation, but the feeling, I didn't know how to articulate that feeling, right? I always felt the angst, but I didn't know what to call it and I didn't know why. And I'm just so glad that we have conversations like these to, to name things that we don't always have the words for. Mm. What, when did you get the words? I'm so curious. Like, what was your journey? Because in your book, you, you write about doing many different modalities and therapy is one of them. Like, what was your journey into getting the words to, to label your anxiety? Yeah. You know, I, I started to think about all the stories I had heard from, you know, the elders about the things that black and brown people, women are supposed to do when they get inside the workplace. And this idea of, just keep your head down and work really hard and, you know, don't rock the boat. And just all of these narratives about <laughs> kind of taking away your own humanity to appease other people. And we had normalized that, you know, that was just, that was like the blueprint of going into a predominantly white environment. And I accepted that blueprint um, for a very long time. And then once I realized that some of my colleagues were really enjoying their work experiences, we were working at the same places and having a very different experience. And I wanted to be able to know what their experience is, not having to worry about race and you know gender at every turn, um, or about being too aggressive, being too Black, being too anything. And, and I always felt like I was walking on eggshells throughout my career. And at the last year of it, I just really started to interrogate and investigate, you know, what's my part in this? I'm being complicit in my own oppression. I'm participating in this and I'm also saying that it's okay for the next person to enter in and have to accept this type of work style and environment too. And so I just started to think about the future and the women that come behind me or sit alongside of me, what am I doing to make it better for them? And I really just started to think about that. So I'm like, if I, maybe it's not going to be as good for myself, but if I can do something different to make it better for somebody else, I don't want them crying in the bathroom. I don't want them crying at home or in the car. Like, I just thought about all those things, and I just wanted to be part of the solution. In your most recent book, you, you set the frame so powerfully 
of women of color as being heartbroken by their experience at work. And I'm curious, now that you're many years out, how, can you spot a broken heart <laughs> in your talks when you, when you meet people? Um, can, you, can you spot people or women who've gotten their hearts broken? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I hear from brokenhearted women several times a day, right? Emails, direct messages, social media. I mean, the stories that people share with me and tell me, it breaks my heart again because these aren't things that happened in like 1965. These are things happening in 2022 that would like blow your mind. And it, I, I have to tell you this, back in 2014, when I was experiencing a lot of oppression in the workplace, when I sat in my car and kind of made the decision that I needed to do something different, I was so heartbroken. And not just because of that environment, but because of all the other environments that I had been into and who just did not see my humanity, were not willing to change. And I felt that rush of emotion from my very first manager who said, you people love your bright colors and joked around about Black people liking bright colors for 15 minutes, all the way to that meeting with that woman who could not and would not want to change the dynamics that I was experiencing. And it rushed over me. And I remember crying so fiercely, just like, God, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do and it's still not enough. And I remember turning on the radio and Whitney Houston's Where Do Broken Hearts Go comes on the radio. And in that moment, I was laughing and crying. I'm like, God, you have such a funny sense of humor. And it was in that moment that I asked myself, <laughs> Where do the broken hearts go, women of color, when we can't take the workplace anymore? And I thought about all those broken hearts and I thought, what would it look like for them to heal? What would it look like for them to be able to know that they're good enough to deserve equity in the workplace? And so I do this work fiercely because I know how it feels to have the broken heart and I see it and I hear about it each and every day. And I know it's possible that we can create that trust and build, but at first has to start with it, right? We have to know that we're good enough to deserve it. And I think it's a mindset shift. And a lot of my work is just reminding people that, you know, you you do deserve better. How do you use mental health in your healing when, when you're talking to people? Because Because you yourself have said that you were anxious every day, but you didn't know that you were anxious. You just thought this was how life was. I'm curious how you use the terminology in mental health and and, and people's mental suffering in your, in your work and your work helping people heal? Yeah, I, I think part of it is just being honest and transparent. I know in Black culture, mental health is kind of a, a taboo topic in terms of therapy. And once I realized that I could not solve this problem by myself, that it was deeper than just me, uh, that I needed a safe space to help unpack some of these feelings that I was experiencing. And I remember talking with people that I was close with and they were like, oh, you don't need to do that. You're not crazy. Right. And this narrative that you have to be quote unquote crazy to seek help. It's actually, no, you're crazy if you're not seeking help. Right? <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is not a solo sport. And once I realized that I spent so much time and energy investing in my career that I had not invested in my mental health because it was tied to each other. And I realized that I needed support and I did seek out therapy. And I'm very transparent about it because I feel like we do need tools in our toolkit to heal, to have 
mental hygiene that's healthy. And sometimes we can't do that on our own. And I think that if we are vulnerable and talk about some of our, you know, challenges in the workplace regarding that, then maybe that will free up somebody else to say, hmm, maybe this is something I could consider, right? And um, that we don't have to hold on to this trauma forever, that we can pack a little bit lighter. And so, you know, that's why I dedicated a whole chapter to talking about therapy and the stigma, because I want to take that away. I want it to be just like available to us, just like we were maybe getting a glass of water if possible, you know, like I want it to be a an option. I want it to be part of us, knowing that we need that for nourishment, right? And maybe it's a life coach, maybe it's church, maybe it's something, but knowing that there are people who do want to aid in our healing process if we choose. But again, healing and having a healthy mindset is a choice, mm. right? So I invite people to choose what freedom essentially could be like for them. Freedom. What advice do you have for someone who was raised in a family where therapy was looked down on and they're thinking, I think, I think I need this, but oh my God, I can't tell my parents. I can't tell my friends. Like what, what gets you over that hump? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a real hump. It's an issue because I think the lack of education that some communities have had, we just don't know the wide range of reasons why someone might seek out therapy, right? Um, It's not a one size fits all, but what I would say is, you know, how important is your health to you? And by what means are you willing to be your most healthiest self? And and I would guess that most of those people listening to our conversation want to be their most healthiest self, right? So consider what it would look like if you added therapy to your toolkit. And I would say, you know, sometimes if you have people who might discourage you from being your most healthiest self, not because they don't want you to be healthy, just because they don't have all of the education to know what what healthy means, right? What freedom means. But maybe you start that process to see what it looks like, find the right healer, health provider that you feel comfortable with. And then once you start to go down that journey, the people closest to you will end up seeing a, a different version of you, a more healthier version of you. And then you know, they'll see it for themselves and we can be those role models. And so I would definitely say protect your heart, protect your mental health, right? That's something that I made a misstep on. I wanted to tell family members and I should have kind of known that they just weren't in the space to kind of think outside of the box in that way at that time. And it almost discouraged me from going because of those stigmas. But I'm so glad that, that I went for it because I get to meet the most healthiest version of myself today. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy, we had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Farah Harris, in, in your book, people think if we center our needs as women, we're being selfish, but seeking healing is a form of selflessness. Why is seeking healing selfless? Yeah, I love that quote uh, from Farah because... I think as women, we've been conditioned to be strong for everybody else but ourselves. And I think that because we've been, many of us have been like caretakers and, and those sorts of things that we don't even know what it looks like. We don't even sometimes know what good looks like to us. <laughs> we don't put ourselves <laughs> first in those ways. And actually, if we do center our health and mental wellness, then the people that love us and we work with, and they get the best versions of us, right? So. I, I make the joke to one of my friends, you know, no, we weren't the angry black woman at work, but we were when we got home, right? Because you take all of that, <laughs> you take all of that stuff from work and you don't show that side. And then you get home and now the people that, you know, love you the most, they oh. are the best version of yourself. And so I, I think that it's so important that we center our health because that's where the, the joy and peace um, come from when we do. Of course, racism in the workplace is a systemic issue. It's not, it's about people to people, but it's also a larger systemic issue. And I'm curious how, how understanding your own mental health better and being at your best would help you change a system. I mean, how does getting healed empower someone to confront a system or is it just impossible to confront the system and we can only focus on the people around us? That's a good question. You know, I, I actually think one, so I'll say this. When I was in my career, I used to think that I didn't have a voice, right? So I'm like, oh, I can't say this because they're going to think I'm angry or aggressive or feisty or whatever other stereotype. And so I learned to shrink my voice. And I realized that part of healing myself, but also creating some accountability in the workplace is creating boundaries, right? And so if I know that I deserve to be able to set boundaries for my coworkers not touching my hair or calling me by the wrong name or those sorts of things, how will they know what good looks like to me if I never articulate that mm. to them, right? And so part of that was understanding that, yes, I might not be able to break down this whole systemic system, but can I deal with the people who and create boundaries around the people that I have to interact with on a daily basis, right? <laughs> Several times a day. Could I create some space to where they understand how to engage with me best and what I will and won't kind of tolerate, even if it's well-intentioned, right? Because your intention still is impacting me in a harmful way, right? So giving ourselves permission to be able to create those spaces. And I think when we hold people accountable for how they engage with us, a, we give, an give them an opportunity to maybe do a little bit better now that they have this information. But number two, if they don't, then that 
gives me another option to say, you know, is this an environment I want to continue working in or do I need to find another space? So I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't activate our voice. Um, We all have a voice. We just have to decide how we want to use it. But first, our healing is so important because we have to remind ourselves that, yes, you should be able to have a, a quote unquote difficult conversation in the workplace that's affecting you doing your best work, even if you're not aware of it. Because I think what we do is we normalize toxic behavior in the workplace and we give people passes and then we ruminate on it. Right. right. And then right. that affects our mental health. And we're upset with these people that don't even know that they've caused us harm half the time. Right. We keep it in. Um, let's talk about yeah. triggers. I think this is such a valuable exercise. You talk about helping people in the book begin to understand and bring to consciousness the racial harm that is triggering them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I love this question so much because I think going back to when I was feeling anxious or when a certain, in the, in the book I call a, a former colleague, Carrie, and I didn't realize that, you know, when her name would pop up in my inbox or her number would pop up on the phone, office phone call or ID, or I'd be in a meeting with her that all of a sudden all of these things would start to happen and to me that I couldn't, I, I just wasn't in a space to be able to connect the dots that this was her causing me this instead of me causing something wrong with me. And so I started to unpack what were my triggers um, that were causing these things, because I think it's so important for us to understand what's behind all of this. And so when I started to think about places where I felt I was most harmed in the workplace, one of those were meetings. And so when I would feel that severe panic attack where I could barely get a word out on some occasions, or it was a struggle to do it. Uh, Maybe my colleagues might not have noticed, but I knew it within myself. It was when she was there or Mm. when certain people would say jokes that were racially charged, it would happen inside of meetings. And that's when I realized, okay, what can I do or what conversations do I need to have so that this environment isn't so triggering for me? And I think once we understand what those triggers are, then we can start to solve for that. Right. But if we don't acknowledge that certain things in our lives or in the workplace are triggering us, maybe it's your manager, maybe it is your inbox. You know, we I don't know, at least where we sit now, you can't probably make it through a workday without checking your email. So you're going to have to figure out <laughs> that trigger. Right? So, so figuring out why these things are important so that we're not suffocated and paralyzed by these experiences. And then we can work to, to solve on how to create solutions and frameworks to help us get through those tough moments. Right. I always think of, I think of a trigger as, you know, you identify the trigger and then ideally, instead of just reacting unconsciously, right, which is what you were doing when you were having panic attacks, you know, you can try to get Mm -hmm. to a place of, of actually taking a beat and saying, I'm triggered. Like, whoa, that comment really set me off. And then choose how you want to respond rather than just reacting in a, you know, the fight or flight is going crazy in your body, right? Absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think part of this, our mental health is we have to acknowledge that these things are a problem first, because I think if we're all kind of in the workplace pretending that these things aren't happening, right? I think that once we acknowledge them, you know, you can't solve for what you're not willing to confront. And that your colleagues may never affirm you, but can you affirm yourself and say, you know what, this is triggering to me. Two things can be true at the same time. My colleague may never be triggered by this, but this is affecting me 
And so what am I going to do about this particular thing? And again, it, it allows us to take our power back because I think when we're in very toxic environments, we just feel like all hope and all power is lost. And, you know, part of being right within is saying, wait, I, I can take the power back at any time. What does that look like for me? Let's, let's talk about the system, though, for a minute. You have said a manager's role, in my opinion, is to eliminate barriers for the people on their team, not create more. And I'm curious how this re- applies specifically to, to mental health in the context of racial trauma. Where, where can managers even start? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question because I think oftentimes, I mean, if anybody who's been a manager, you know, you have a lot on your plate and you're sometimes just trying to keep the ship moving forward. And I think sometimes because we have personal relationships with people on our team or because we're like, oh, that's just Tom being Tom, like, you know, people don't take things seriously that might be actually affecting somebody else. And I think in the workplace, uh, we uh, we speak for other people so often like, oh, well, they didn't mean the arm or that's just whatever. And I think sometimes managers take that same approach like, oh, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. They're not racist. They're not sexist or whatever the case. And it's like, wait a second. That may not be your experience, but there might be someone on your team that that is a problem for them, right? So if we're allowing toxic behavior as managers because, you know, we know someone didn't mean harm, again, that might be true, but is it impacting someone else on the team in a negative way? So in that case, we should address it in a way so we eliminate the barrier so that we don't just keep compounding it. And I think if every manager commits to everyday acts of equity, um, to understand that this, is, again, it's not my experience, but if I have diverse talent on my team, then I can't let certain colleagues talk like this recklessly in meetings, right? Or send emails that are disparaging and humiliating, even if they didn't intend to. And so I think it's important for managers to tap into their emotional intelligence and say, what can I do to make sure that everybody on my team is invested in, right? And what do they need for me to be be their healthiest selves, right? Because if everybody's safe on the team, then productivity is great. And then that's good for business. And I think it is a role of a manager's job, in my opinion, to create that psychological safety on a team. Because if one person isn't safe, then no one is safe, right? And I think that sometimes managers don't look at things. I Last thing I'll say is I do a lot of consulting for companies and I'll have conversations, you know, closed door conversations with leaders. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm not comfortable talking about race or, or now I'm not comfortable talking with women alone. And, and I'll say, well, you know, equity can't be opt-in. It has to be mandatory. And so if you're not comfortable <laughs> talking about these certain things, then maybe you should not be managing talent anymore because there's no way that you could be an equitable manager and not be comfortable talking about race or calling someone by their preferred pronoun, it's just not a safe environment. And, and they kind of like look at me in the deer in headlights. <laughs> and I'm just like, you, you just can't do this, right? Because you're just perpetuating cycles of abuse. And I think if companies and orgs really want to change, then they're going to equip their managers with the tools to be not just with the soft skills, as people would say, but those are leadership skills. What's the role you think that people who are anxious play in creating or being part of a psychologically safe or unsafe team. You know, it's hard. A psychologically safe team is a team where you can be yourself. Mm -hmm. 
You will not be shamed if you speak up or speak your truth, right? And yet so many of us are walking around on eggshells, like you said. How, how do we even start to unpack all of this? It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. You know, like the main thing that I hear from people after they read, right, within, they'll say, wow, I didn't even realize that I was in trauma, right? You don't even yeah. sometimes know it because you've just normalized it and just like I've had for so long. And I think that part of it is saying, okay, the workplace is not working for everybody. Like even now, people are plotting to return back to the office and it's like, no, let's not return back to normal. Let's figure out how to return back to better. better. And that means that we have to better. So we have to understand what is the employee cycle been for some people. So yes, some people are ready to get back, but they weren't harmed in the workplace before, right? Then you have 50% of Black employees who've been recently surveyed saying that they didn't feel like they belonged at their companies until working from home. So they don't want to return back. Many of them don't want to return back. And so with that information, if I'm a leader, I'm going to say, you know what, why don't my, why do a majority of my black and brown employees not want to return back? And what do I need to do to make sure that they feel safe returning back into the office, right? What does better look like? What conversations, what, what initiatives, what processes or procedures do we need to change to make it safer so that everybody feels a sense of safety? And I, I just don't think that oftentimes Leaders are thinking ahead. They're thinking very um, reactive to things. But if we could be a little more proactive with some of the things, then I think that we could start to at least build trust. And I think that's where it all starts, right? There's so much trust that's been lost inside the workplace. And part of the healing is rebuilding trust. What does a demonstration, what does being a custodian of trust so that your employees who have been harmed the most feel like they can trust you again? And I think that that is what I hope leaders will be thinking about. How do we build trust? Because if we build trust, then we can start to break down some of these systems that have been harmful. Mm. My last question is a totally different question, but I follow you on, on social media. You are out there. You're like doing everything. How has your new life, um, <laughs> which is very, which is very public, it seems to me, which, which is amazing. Like, how do you keep up your healing routine or regime or how do you stay centered when you're out there? Thank you for such a thoughtful question. Um, it's actually, and I'll be honest, it's something that I talk with my therapist about way more than I ever thought I would be talking about because, <laughs> because um, I'm really, a lot of people don't know this about me who don't know me in like real life is that I'm very much an introvert. And so uh, a lot of the work that I do definitely puts me forward facing. And when people read my books, then, you know, they, they feel like they know me. And, and, um, and so it's one of those things where, because I am a very shy person and introverted that I, it, it takes a lot out of me at times to kind of be that forward facing person. And, and when I started this journey, it wasn't, you know, for people to know my name, it was to change the way the workplace was working for people who looked like me and, and now with that new responsibility, I, I definitely realize how important my healing, my continued healing is so that I can be the most healthiest to, to be there for people and, and be a voice for people who haven't found theirs yet. And so it's a, it's a, a different life. Like I, I talk about it all the time with my family and friends that I, 
I don't even know how I got here some days, you know, I'm just like, how did this happen? I, I mean, I'm thankful to God um, for the opportunity, but it's definitely been an adjustment and so many people are seeing themselves in a way for the first time that they haven't in the career narrative. And, and, and that feels, and that feels good. And that's what keeps me going, right? Because Minda, the real me would like, just want to go down the rabbit hole and be like, can't people just read the books and do the things, but, but, but I know that it's, it's bigger than me. And so that makes me continuously get up and, and do the work because I know how important it is. That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krenko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. On an upcoming show, we'll be looking deeper at imposter syndrome and how it affects your mental health. To share your story about imposter syndrome, send us a voice memo or video to anxiousachievermail at gmail.com. You can tweet me at moraam or reach me on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I promise I'll respond. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe, and leave a review. From LinkedIn, this is Maura Aarons-Mealing.